It's Tuesday, October 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. When will theme parks come back to California? Disney and the city of Anaheim is in a battle with the state to reopen Disneyland and get back to normal. Full guidelines on reopening have not been released, but we do know some of the requirements. The park would be limited to 25% capacity and restricted to visitors that live with 120 miles. The park is a huge economic driver for local businesses, but a balance must be struck in protecting the health of the public and employees. Tarpley Hit, reporter at the Daily Beast, joins us for the fight to reopen Disneyland. Next, while President Trump campaigned on getting rid of the swamp and Washington's insider culture of lobbying, he actually built a swamp of his own, where his properties and businesses reap the benefits of public and private businesses and special interest groups spending money at those properties. According to the New York Times, 60 customers brought in nearly $12 million to his family business during the first two years of his presidency. And people knew where to find him. Trump has visited his resorts and hotels nearly 400 days since his inauguration. Kenneth Vogel, reporter at the New York Times, joins us for how Trump's properties made money from those wanting to get close to the president. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We are not uh, putting the health and safety of, uh, of people visiting this state uh, or recreating in this state at theme parks at risk. Joining us now is Tarpley Hit, reporter at the Daily Beast. Thanks for joining us, Tarpley. Hey, thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about the fight to reopen Disneyland in California. There's other properties. Obviously, Disney World has been open for a little bit of time now. But in California, the fight is particularly difficult. The governor, Gavin Newsom, and other officials have failed to put out guidelines so far for Disneyland. They want them. They're asking for them. The city of Anaheim, where Disneyland is located, is asking for the park to be reopened. They're really a driver of a lot of money in the city right there and in the county. Disneyland has been closed for more than 200 days. They've had to lay off a bunch of people, and it has effects for all the businesses around it. So the businesses and Disney obviously want the park open. California and the leadership there are kind of taking their time with reopening this. So Tarpley, tell us about this battle to reopen. So Disney obviously closed back in March and they had initially planned to reopen in July, right? When Disney World was going to reopen. But at that time, Governor Newsom had not yet released reopening guidelines for theme parks. And so after making this big announcement, oh, we're going to reopen, they actually backtrack and say, okay, we're actually just going to open this small retail and restaurant strip, the downtown Disney district. And so since then, they've sort of been in this back and forth with Newsom over when can we reopen? When are you going to release these guidelines? And about two weeks ago, Gavin Newsom was getting ready to release the reopening guidelines, I believe on Friday, October 2nd. And then before he could, former Disney CEO and now I believe executive chairman Bob Iger saw a copy of the guidelines and quit the governor's COVID-19 economic recovery task force in protest. It's unclear exactly what he saw on the guidelines that concerned him, but it seems like because COVID-19 is a pretty infectious disease that there was going to be limits on capacity at the theme park. So they were only going to allow 25% capacity, it seems, based on Anaheim officials who saw the drafts. They were also going to place limits on where visitors could come from. So people would have to stay from around the Southern California area. They couldn't come from, you know, 
New York. Yeah, they had to reside um, within 120 miles is, is what we we're hearing, which puts a lot of people that want to travel and come to the park. You know, it's so tourism heavy there. That's probably something that they did not like seeing. But, you know, you also got to think about the people that are working at the park. You know, it's important to keep them safe. As you know, in Disney World, they implemented a system where the people who staffed the park were getting tested daily on site. And some of the workers who have gone back to work at the downtown Disney district have been concerned that Disney did not implement on-site testing for the staff there. So that's sort of an ongoing thing also in the figuring out how to reopen amusement parks is how are we going to keep the people that run this place safe. And figuring out how to keep the people there safe. But on the flip side of that, you know, Disney has had to lay off, I think it was 28,000 workers overall, but a lot of them did come from California. A lot of them were part-time workers who didn't qualify for some of the benefits that they had, but there was also full-time workers. And I know unions are working with Disney to figure out how that is all going to turn out. So workers that were previously there and furloughed and all, they've been hit really hard as well. You know, a lot of these people are part-time workers, which means that they didn't work enough hours to qualify for things like childcare or healthcare. But some of the people that were laid off did qualify for all of those things. And now in the middle of a global pandemic, they will no longer have health insurance or may no longer have health insurance still being hashed out between the unions and Disney. Disney executives are also getting blowback for laying off all these workers, but actually, you know, they took pay cuts at the beginning of this thing, but now they're returning back to regular pay levels. So that's another criticism there that Disney leadership is getting. So back in late March, Bob Iger announced, I'm going to forego my entire salary. And Bob Chapek was taking a 50% pay cut. And the vice presidents were taking between 20 and 30% salary cuts. Those announcements were a little bit misleading because obviously with executive pay, you get a certain amount as a base salary, and then you get a lot more in terms of performance bonuses. So for example, I believe Bob Iger's salary that he was foregoing was about two and a half million dollars, but he was going to make several times more that in sort of long-term bonuses. So this was represented a modest pay cut, in fact. But then in late August, they announced in a letter to shareholders that they were going to restore the pre-pandemic salaries of all of those executives. And then a month and six days after that, they lay off 28,000 people. So that's definitely caught some flack. It really seems like there's this big stalemate right now. No end in sight for this. The governor needs to release some guidelines so they can start working for them. You know, we're hearing that Disneyland is going to adopt the recommendations from the county health agency to reopen, but they need to get the green light from the governor as well. So it's just a tough thing. You know, a lot of people want to get back to work. The city of Anaheim suffers because businesses around there rely on Disneyland as a big economic driver. It's really tough and it doesn't seem like it's going to open anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky thing. It's sort of like this situation that a lot of businesses are in right now where it's like they want to reopen, but health officials are not saying that it's entirely safe for indoor activities or activities with a lot of people to open. And that's a real catch-22. It might be softened if there were perhaps programs that could support people while they waited out the duration of the quarantine until, you know, we have a vaccine and things are really safe to return to business. But as Newsom said, I think in a press conference last week, he's going to be really stubborn about reopening theme parks because they're taking a health first approach. I mean, we saw what happened over the summer when Los Angeles County specifically, you know, reopened indoor dining very quickly. And we had this huge surge in summer cases. So I think officials are now taking a more cautious approach. Tarpley Hit, reporter at the Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us.
Thanks for having me. And he was actually based in Florida and had done business with the president before, but had never been a member of Mar-a-Lago. And he and his clients would routinely show up at Mar-a-Lago for fundraisers or for other events when he knew that the president was going to be there and were able to sort of plead their case. Joining us now is Kenneth Vogel, reporter at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Kenneth. Hey, it's great to be with you, Oscar. wanted to talk about some of the reporting you guys have been doing at The New York Times. It was last month that you released a bunch of President Trump's tax returns, and really there was so much to go through, and you guys have been doing a lot of great reporting, digging in really deep into the president's financials. And the latest story that you have is about how much the Trump properties businesses have kind of benefited from him being president. For a long time, he had been campaigning on draining the swamp, but he kind of created this new swamp, reinvented it really in his own properties. There's a lot of businesses, a lot of foreign politicians, a lot of people that have been going to Trump properties. They kind of know he's going to be there and they've all found a way to speak to the president at different times. There's just really a lot going on. So, Kenneth, if you can help us with some of this, tell us how these Trump properties have benefited from the president. Well, in many ways, Oscar, they've been a rare bright spot in his business empire, which is we've reported using the tax data that we obtained really was struggling in the run-up to his presidential campaign. And then even after he became president, to the extent that we have visibility into one year of his finances at that point, the Trump properties, on the other hand, particularly the ones that he visited and patronized as president, became sort of like that had a little bit of a home field advantage. That is, anyone who uh, interfaced with government, whether they were lobbyists or foreign officials or uh, business owners who wanted something from the government knew, as you put it, that there was a good chance that he would be there. And that even if he wasn't there, that he was sort of keeping tabs on what was happening at these businesses. And that's one of the things that we revealed that even as he said, when he came into office, that he would distance himself from the businesses and put them in a trust that his son, Eric Trump, would run that that was not the case. He was very much aware of what was going on to the point where he was even being kept apprised of different managers' performances <laughs> yeah. and potential weaknesses. So those properties, when I talk about those properties, I mean, it's, there are a few of them, but the, the two biggies are Mar-a-Lago, which he branded the Winter White House, and the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C., right down the street from the White House. But then, I guess, to, to a lesser extent, Bedminster, where he also spent some time in the summers. Those became real hotspots for access brokering, and you saw a number of folks patronize these properties as a way to get in good with the president, either to actually be there with him and be able to plead their case, or at least have him and his family know that these people were helping him by putting money in his family's pocket. Tell us a little bit about who was going to these Trump properties while he became president, and what he delivered, what the administration started delivering some, for some of these people and entities that were spending money there. Take one example of Mar-a-Lago, and, you know, he spent a lot of time down there for sure, and there were uh, entities, uh, trade associations and the like, that would have their conferences there, hoping during the peak season, that is the uh, winter, when Florida was a, a nice warm spot for the president to go, and there were entities that would hold their uh, galas there with the hope of him dropping by. There were lobbyists who became members of Mar-a-Lago. There's a guy, one guy in particular, Brian Ballard, who was a fundraiser for the president's campaign and became 
suddenly in the president's election became one of the most powerful lobbyists in Washington. In fact, Politico ran a story calling him the most powerful lobbyist in Trump's Washington. And he was actually based in Florida and had done business with the president before, but had never been a member of Mar-a-Lago. And he and his clients would routinely show up at Mar-a-Lago for fundraisers or for other events when he knew that the president was going to be there and were able to sort of plead their case. And some examples of that are there was a Syrian opposition group that was urging a harder line against uh, President Bashar al-Assad that was objectively sort of a good cause and that they wanted uh, to uh, prevent this brutal leader from uh, clamping down on his own people in, in a violent way. But Brian Ballard encouraged the members of this group that was paying Brian Ballard to show up, to pay, to show up at a fundraiser with President Trump. They did so and were able to make their case directly to him in a way that actually swayed him. Another one was an Indian American businessman who was uh, pushing for changes to the visa and immigration rules that would benefit companies and people sort of similarly situated. And he felt that the president uh, came through with a tweet after he made the case to the president at another one of these fundraisers. So you have this pattern here where Brian Ballard is using what he understands to be this access point of Mar-a-Lago. And Brian Ballard was sort of none too subtly pressured by people within the president's orbit, like, hey, you're making a lot of use of Mar-a-Lago here. <laughs> right. You should become a member. And sure enough, he became a member of Mar-a-Lago. He told us that he didn't do it for business reasons, but because his mother really enjoyed going there and having dinner there. <laughs> so whether you want to take him at his word or not, you certainly see how it could be beneficial to a lobbyist to be able to have that unfettered access to the president for both the lobbyist and the lobbyist clients. How much were the memberships to Mar-a-Lago? Because there was a couple times where the president said, hey, I should even increase the membership fees because to weed out the fakers or something like that. Yeah, and he did, in fact, increase the membership fees. He raised it to $200,000. I think it was more than half of that, but I think it was $125,000 before he uh, became president. It was raised to $200,000 after he was elected, and then it was subsequently raised again to $250,000. So uh, almost doubled in the time that he's been president, and they added a bunch of new members. And you know, it's tough to say definitively, like in the case of Brian Ballard, you see certainly how the cost-benefit analysis would weigh in favor of him becoming a member, but people have all kinds of different reasons. There's another guy, Elliot Broidy, who was a major donor and fundraiser for Republican campaigns for years, including Trump's, and he had a defense contracting business, and he did a lot of business at the Trump Hotel in Washington. He, too, became a member of Mar-a-Lago, and people uh, close to him said that that was because his in-laws lived in South Florida. He would have spent more time there. But again, it certainly right. benefits someone like that to have that access plan. And I should also point out that Elliot Brody just last week was charged with a single count of conspiring to violate foreign lobbying laws in an effort to get a Malaysian businessman and the Malaysian prime minister in with Trump. And one of the places where he wanted to do that was none other than Bedminster trying to organize a golf game for the then Malaysian prime minister who has subsequently also been convicted of corruption back home in Malaysia. Tell me a little bit about the Trump Hotel in Washington, because that's been a big hub for religious gatherings and other people that want to do fundraisers and tours in there. So tell me about the Trump Hotel in Washington. Yeah, sure. And it is another access point. And you make a good point to that sometimes just getting that picture is the goal. But getting that picture can be quite valuable, particularly for foreign politicians, where they want to be able to signal that they have the support of the United States. And that is beneficial to them back home to their domestic audiences. 
to be able to suggest that they have an advantage over rivals or opposing candidates or rivals within their own parliamentary governments because they have access to the President of the United States. And so there's an example that we cite in the story of Elliot Brody, again, bringing some Romanian politicians, including a guy who happened to be under a corruption investigation to the Trump Hotel during Inauguration Week, and they bumped into President Trump, and Brody's people say it was totally random, impromptu. Nonetheless, this Romanian politician ended up getting a photo of him shaking hands with President Trump, putting it on Facebook and characterizing it as some kind of great victory where he extracted from President Trump a promise of closer ties with Romania. It's unclear whether that happens. certainly seems to be somewhat exaggerated, but you have an example there of how it can be beneficial to someone just to get that photo. Now, on the religious groups, there's a little bit of a different twist. A number of these conservative religious groups actually see it. They're quite open about saying that they want to reward President Trump for being good on their issues and the way that they're doing that is by renting out the space at the Trump Hotel in order to have their conferences. The It's tough in some ways. I mean, we talk about how it, it, there's not necessarily a, a direct provable causal link. Right. And with the uh, religious groups in particular, or actually with any of the groups having events at the Trump Hotel in Washington, you know, the Trump Hotel didn't open until right around President Trump's inauguration. So... This is all new business. These groups all did their uh, conferences that they would do in Washington, which is a common thing for groups that have an interest in public policy to have an conf- annual conference in Washington. They all had done them previously somewhere else. The Trump Hotel rates were not always competitive. Sometimes they were much more. But nonetheless, some of these religious groups thought that it was something where they were showing appreciation for President Trump, who had been good on their issues, including abortion, taking a very hard line against abortion by having their events there. Another one is gun rights groups. They were quite pleased with the Trump presidency and his sort of absolutist position on the Second Amendment, and they too had events there. Uh, And in most of the cases, except with some of the religious groups who who will admit, yes, we're we're trying to help President Trump because he has helped us, in other cases, such as with this Second Amendment group called the National Sports Shooting Foundation that had a big event at the Trump Hotel, they say, oh, no, it was just a good deal. We got a good deal there. <laughs> right. so that's why we decided to do it there. And we reflected them saying that in the story, even as uh, I think a lot of readers would conclude that maybe there were ulterior motivations. Well, the last question I have briefly, how much money are we looking at? Because there's $100,000 here, a few uh, extra $100,000 there for holding fundraisers, booking rooms, all the whole thing. How much money are we looking at that the Trump properties have gotten from all of this? It's difficult to say overall, but one thing that we can, a calculation that we did make was that we found 60 customers of Trump properties that had interest at stake before the federal government that spent nearly $12 million during the first two years alone of the Trump presidency, and that almost all of these 60 customers ended up having their interest advanced in some way, shape, or form by the president or his government. So $12 million is probably just the tip of the iceberg, but you do see the relationship between spending money at the Trump Hotel and getting something from the Trump administration. Kenneth Vogel, reporter at The New York Times, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, it was a pleasure to be with you, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.